Narratives are a core component of human experiences. They're discussed in anthropology, psychology, neurology. In short, they are a tool for how to capture and communicate experiences beyond factual exposition or description. They play a role not only for individuals, but also cultures. But can this tool be used to achieve greater aspirations? Can you change a culture and the broader society by changing narratives? Let's discuss it this week on... Philosophers. Philosophers. So quick update before we begin today's episode. Um, we have rearranged our studio, or we have changed up our studio arrangement uh, quite a bit. So things might sound a bit different from here on out for the foreseeable future, that is. So thank you for bearing with us um, as we make adjustments to our new surroundings. So thank you very much. That is the end of this PSA. And now on to... Please send hate mail to Joe at... I don't know. Yeah, something like that. I have a I have an email for this. I don't remember what it is, though. I could really use some fan mail, because it's kind of one of those chicken and egg problems, you know? If I don't get emails to it, why do I check it? But if I don't check it, no one's going to bother. Exactly. So, anyway, we have a topic today. We have a topic today. Um, so, this week, finally, it's my turn to pick a topic. Um, and I decided that I wanted to talk about why stories and myths matter. Interesting. Yes. And this will come in two big chunks. Uh, namely, what do we mean by that? Like, what is a story? What's a myth? Uh, yes, the classic talking about what we're talking about. And that's about 80% of the episode today. Yeah. Outstanding. Yes. And then the last 20%, I would say, is uh, about what are the consequences of altering myths? Mm. and stories um <clears throat> so let's just jump on into what i'm talking about um so what do i mean or what do we mean when we say a story or a myth um i'm primarily talking about narratives today or that's, that's what i think we should be talking mostly about i think that's what most people mean when they talk about a story yeah i i would agree um Although today, all of my fellow literary people out there that appreciate literature and the finer workings of it, I'm actually going to attempt to use the academic definition of what a narrative is. So, like, what, when I say that term, what, what would you? How would you describe a narrative? Just generally speaking, a narrative is when a narrator relays the the plot to the audience okay um and that can either be you know in in literature if we're actually talking about books you know this can be done from various perspectives either you know maybe the main character is the narrator or there's a third person narrator or something like that <clears throat> sure but someone is telling a story they're telling you what happens in the story okay that's pretty close um Weirdly enough, um, I don't believe a narrative actually needs a narrator <laughs> in the official sense. Um, not in what's it's it's complicated. Well, whoever's telling the story is the narrator, <clears throat> right? Um, so that's either the author of the book, or sure, if you're listening to a radio program, then the show host is the narrator, right? So I, I guess technically if it's like a movie or something, then that doesn't need a narrator. You could abstractly say 
that the screenwriter is the narrator, or you could say that the viewer who's interpreting the events is forming the narrative that's being told to them. But we'll, that's a bit of a stretch. It's, but. A, it's a bit of a stretch. So literally speaking, and this was the definition I was able to come to, to come across that I think it's pretty well sums it up is it's any account of a series of related events or experiences. Okay. Um, and a narrative is one of four rhetorical modes of discourse. And these rhetorical modes are not mutually exclusive. So it's not like you can say, oh, well, this is strictly a narrative and that's it. Some things are, but some things can also be the other. So the four rhetorical modes in this case are narratives, which we've just given the definition for. And then there's also argumentation, which is kind of persuasive or critical, you know, criticism Mm -hmm. would fall under that. There's descriptive. You can think of this as journals or a report, maybe a news article, or at least classically speaking, a news article. Um, And then there's expositive, which is like a textbook or a manual. So those are kind of the four modes that you can speak. Um, And they can overlap. Right. So anthropologically speaking, and we're, we're just mainly talking about narratives today. So I wanted to look at narratives from the anthropological perspective first, um, because what I really care about is not just narratives in a vacuum, because narratives te- tend to be a thing that we humans do. And I'm sure you might be able to point at some other species being able to form narratives in the abstract sense, perhaps. Not that I know of. Um, if you're using a really watered down definition of narrative, maybe. Um, or the maybe having the capability to... Um, recall a, a series of related events or experiences together. I I know I know there are other animals that can relay experiences to one another. Like they can they can describe things that they witnessed, but I don't know that they can, or maybe they can, but I don't know whether they do form stories that they tell. Right. Like uh, the the most interesting thing that I think I know of is uh, dolphins. They use echo or the sonar essentially to uh to see in thick or dark water and they can actually make sounds to one another that put an image in the other's mind they can make a sound that looks like what the thing looked like which is pretty cool that is very cool um but it's not telling a story no (laughs) um so since narratives at least you know narrowing it down Narratives from the human perspective do tend to play a more um, important role for us. So looking at it from the anthropological perspective, um, the main role of narratives are to propagate proper behavior, cultural history, the formation of a communal identity, and cultural values. And you see this being very important during the parts of oral history, which is technically entering into the realm of prehistory because we didn't write anything down. Yes. Because technically history only counts what is written. Exactly. So, but before we had the ability to write things down, we still communicated like human beings. We still told stories. We still told stories before we wrote them down. And that was the primary method by which we would pass those things, you know, proper behavior, cultural history, formation of cultural, communal identity and values down to and amongst generations. 
the oldest written story is the Epic of Gilgamesh. The, believe- only, the oldest surviving written story. Yes, that's important. Yeah, that we know maybe, of. maybe somebody else wrote a story, but we lost all the copies. Right. Yeah. Um, and in that epic, it, it tells a lot about... Anthropologists will look at that to infer a lot about the culture uh, of... Was it um, what was the proper name for that society? Uh, dang it, I forget. I forget off the top of my head. Uh, Sumerians, maybe is that where that was found? Ancient Sumeria. I don't it, remember. Uh, sounds about right. It, it's somewhere like over that. there in a river valley near you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, and, and I think this is fairly obvious to most people. Um, we teach children this way before children can read. We, we tell them fables and stories to get them to think about things that we want them to think about. Exactly. Instead of just lecturing to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the stories are interesting. You want to know what happens next. A good story, anyway. Exactly. Well, and that leads on to the, the next part, or the next angle from which we can view narratives, which is the psychological angle. Um, and I have a quote here from a gentleman named Owen Flanagan. <laughs> uh, he was a researcher at duke and he researched consciousness and the way he i think i like the way he summed it up as he says that evidence suggests that all humans in all cultures come to cast their own identity in some sort of narrative form where we are inveterate inveterate storytellers so that encapsulates it like a lot of the right the readings that i did about it so we go so far as to kind of narrate our own lives in our heads yeah it's it's that effective a way for human beings to understand things yeah it it is how we understand events and how how things progress um there's a there's quite a good ted talk i don't remember who gave it at this point about telling stories and and the um the psychology of storytelling in in which they they analyze brainwave patterns of people telling and hearing stories and so if you're all the people who had arrived to listen to the story, um, their brainwave patterns were all essentially random. There, there was no particular, or okay, it, everyone was thinking about their own business, mm-hmm. as one would expect. But as soon as the storyteller began telling the story, within seconds, everybody in the audience synchronized. Yeah. Um immediately you lock onto the story and you're trying to and and not only did it synchronize but it very closely resembled the same brainwave patterns of the storyteller you when you tell a story if you are a good storyteller i don't even know how good you have to be but you do in some very real sense get into the audience's head right well and i think this kind of goes back to an experience i had when i was in public school um, I had those classes where, and this it was usually an English quote English class or a literature class where we would be called on to read aloud, you know. And one of the most annoying things about that is when someone who isn't a good reader, well, oh, good at reading out goodness. loud, oh, the pain. <clears throat> Just like you know me stumbling over that sentence before, <laughs> it, it's it's hard to listen to. And I would imagine being a good storyteller is one that just has a flow about what they're speaking. You know? Yes. They, if you can tell the story without breaking it up and distracting me with the fact that, you know, if I start thinking about how bad you are at reading, I'm not paying attention to the narrative. And it's frustrating. 
to me anyway. And I feel yes. like a lot of people it's the same. Well, yeah, this is why this is why people fall asleep in English class. Yeah, because you're reading something that is supposed to be interesting, right? And someone is going at about three words a minute, um, trying to pick up something off the page, and you're just like, "Oh my goodness, can can anyone else read this, please?" Exactly. And even professionally speaking, you know, when I look at classes that I had, like history is another good example. The best history teachers I've ever had were those that could tell a good story. Yes. They had inflection in their voice. You know, they really kind of got into the way the history on. is absorbed is, is when you can actually paint the picture of what's going on in the scenario. Right. Like <clears throat> turn all of the historical figures into characters. You can make characters historically accurate. Ex- absolutely. Um, and, and so, yeah, when you, when you can, when you get everyone in the class invested in the characters, the figures in the story, um, then they understand the context much better about why so-and-so a thing you're trying to teach them happened. Right. And that will stick a lot better than just saying World War, World War One was started on this day. On this day when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. Like, yay. That tells me nothing. Right. Basically. But, but if you start that out by saying it's this year. Archduke Ferdinand is in Serbia, you know, and, and you narrate the story of his assassination. You can include details about right. the well, setting. Like, talk about the assassin. Like, why, why did he do it? Yeah. yeah. Why would this assassin want to kill him? Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to bring us down to, I guess, flesh, fleshing out what a narrative is. And we're going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> uh, the elements of a narrative. Um, and these are similar to, um, the old adage, who, what, when, where, and why, uh, that you get told when you take a writing class. Or I was told anyway. Um, but specific to a narrative, you have the setting, the narrator, could be more than one, uh, the characters slash character archetypes, cause and effect, or sometimes the lack thereof. It there, It's a very predominant way to form a narrative is to... F- is to chain together cause and effect events. Um, and then there's the motivation. So going through those, taking our history into, into our history professor analogy, um, setting would be one of the biggest things they'd want to focus on because I don't know about you, but I distinctly remember being in school. One of the things you get tested over harder than anything else is what year something happened, which is terrible because it doesn't matter, you know, yeah, really. exactly what year did this happen? Who cares? You need to know vaguely when it happened. Well, and, and I think... I think that, Well, I guess the more important thing is what else was happening at the exactly. same time that this was happening? What happened right before this? What led up to this? And what happened after it as a result? You know, that's more important than knowing what year. If, you, if everything is all shifted by a year, it's fine. You, you still understand. Um, the date is important, though, when you look at history more holistically like a good example is if you're looking at the events that occurred around the american civil war it's helpful to know those dates on hand so that if you read something about another event going on in the world as as well you know in the 1860s the british were involved in india or whatever you, you can go oh, okay i know roughly what's going on but i know I'm, I'm thinking about this in terms of like almost a video game where it's like what was their tech level at the time <laughs> like, but you know what i mean like what technology is available at the time who was in charge of what what was considered cultural norms at that time you know it can help in that way but as long as 
but the date's just useful for linking those things together. If you already understand that, the date is less important in my mind. Um, but I mean, obviously setting matters. Um, I think when you look at most stories, when they're being told settings, usually the first thing that's discussed, um, it's either the setting or the narrator, but they almost, or the character main character that you're talking about or a character that you're talking about. Um, but those two things go hand in hand. You can start with one or the other and it makes for a very organic way, uh, of, setting up the context you very rarely will start with cause and effect or a motivation and if you do start with those it's almost always tied to cause and effect can be tied to both character or setting and motivation is almost always tied to a character um same thing with the narrator and narrators um they're the person speaking so they're literally there from the beginning till the end um regardless of whether it's a third person omniscient narrator who knows everything that's going to happen and has happened and that's kind of very familiar to us um, because that's how we're normally given stories is you assume that the person who's telling the story already knows what happens because they're telling you the story (laughs) you know if you were sitting in front of me telling me a story i would assume you knew how it ended because otherwise how could you finish you know um or you're just very bad at telling jokes um (laughs) exactly (laughs) um so uh yeah and then there's also, so then you have the narrators, which again, like we said, people telling the story, uh, characters and character archetypes. The reason these are split apart is because if you look at all the stories that exist that we know of, right, you can kind of draw parallels between different, you know, characters from different stories kind of filling the same role. Um, the idea of the main character, for example... That's something that everyone's familiar with. So regardless of whether you're reading a story about a soldier in a war or a kid playing a baseball game, you can quickly identify the main character. And that's important because oftentimes that's who we resonate with. Um, A good example is when you look at stories that are from a perspective other than the good guy, right? Um, main characters are almost always good guys because they're the people, we all believe that we're good people, so we easily resonate with that and it's easy for storytelling. What's difficult is when you flip that narrative on its head and you're the bad guy, but any bad guy who's the main character is all of a sudden not as bad as he was when he wasn't the main right. character. You know? And uh, you see this happen a lot in stories when you're trying to share perspective. Um so uh, I, I don't have a definitive list of the archetypes in front of me, but um, the hero is like one of the most common and easily identifiable, especially sure. in our current age where comic books abound and comic book related media mm-hmm. abound. Uh, they all are similar because they all follow a very similar formula. You have the person with the power who is special and they're the main character. And there's usually someone else who is probably also similar in power that is their adversary, you know, and then everyone else, <laughs> you know, and they support one side or the other. It's sure. Yeah. Um, and those are their archetypes too. Like the mentor, the mentor. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, there's the mentor, which is not always, but usually kind of tied to another archetype, the father figure. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's a usually a nurturing presence, which is like the mother figure, uh, but it doesn't always have to be a parental relationship. But mm-hmm. that's, I think, the fact that we use familial relations for a lot of archetypes says a lot about, you know, how just tightly we use narratives that we relate them to our own realistic experience. Because for the vast majority of human beings, they are aware of their at least one of their parents, mm-hmm. right, or parental figure. Even there, there is a there is sure the, you don't need to care about the biology, right? There is a person that when you were not old enough to form your own opinions, really, or to speak or to care for yourself, that cared for you, and that person is the person who fills that archetype for you in your narrative. So whenever you see that similar character in a story that's not about you, but about someone else, you will apply how you feel about that figure to that character filling the same archetype. And that's kind of the whole point of archetypes is it allows us to make assumptions uh, about a character's role that makes it easier, makes it easier for the author to not have to go into such explicit detail. Um, I think a good example of a time times when authors do this um, is I think it's Frank Herbert's Dune. It's Frank Herbert, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just playing off the top of my head, but the sounds right to me. The book Dune, right? That book is massive, and it has a ton of exposition in it, and it's because the author at the time was stepping far outside traditional archetypes. Um, and traditional organization for what we would expect in stories. This was back when sci-fi was a new idea. Um, we were still constructing tropes for sci-fi at that time. So the author had to go to great length to just explain everything about the setting that he created, this grand setting. And it's and it, it's weird because that's one of the biggest criticisms of that book. Is that, oh, why do you spend hundreds of pages explaining to me what all of these things are and it's because nobody's heard of them yet exactly well and not only that but you can't just if you just hear the name of something and he gives you a short synopsis you're going to attempt to put them in an archetype but later on in the story when he references them he doesn't want you to take that archetypical image of what you expect because they're going to do something that is not within that bucket Mm -hmm. and if he doesn't prepare you for that, you're not going to understand. You've lost the plot. Yeah. yeah. The plot's not going to make sense. You're going to be like, what? Why did they do that? You know, you're not going to understand. So he has to go back and explain it all. So I find that particularly interesting about archetypes. Um, we also have uh, cause and effect or causality, dash the last thereof, lack thereof. Um so there's a good anecdote in here about the creators of South Park, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And it's very funny because when you look at that show, it is one of the most low budget productions I've ever seen, but it's still super effective and popular and has been going on for more than two decades now. Yeah. Um, and when asked uh, about how they were able to pull this off, they pretty much can sum it up to their writing style being... Instead of saying "and then" when you're yeah, trying to this link together, and then this and then this and then this happened, yeah, you you instead use therefore and but. Right. This happened, and so, yeah, this, but this, yeah, yeah, and that makes a much more interesting story. Right, because the story doesn't follow as linear of a path. It has to take turns to get to where it wants to go, yeah. and that's what makes it interesting. Um, 
And life kind of is like that too. Very, very seldom is your life just, you know, that linear. Uh, and then the last one is motivation. And this is a hard one to kind of capture because it, le- it leans on archetypes quite a bit. Um, archetypes are just kind of ways to bundle characters and their motivations. Um, but all a motivation is are just is just a reason. Um, it can be something as cheap as a throwaway line, which is when a character walks in the room and says, whew, it's raining pretty hard outside. All that does is tell you why that character was late to wherever they showed up to or what where what they were doing or what they might sure. be like. Um, or, you know, if a character steals something, if you have not set up already a character's need to do that, they're going to come across like a sociopath, you know? Um but if it's laid out to you before that this character is very poor, um, they starve a lot. They don't have a lot. If they steal, you can just, you infer that, oh, they're doing it out of necessity. Mm-hmm. And they're not just being bad. you know. Um, and then the last part about narratives uh, that we want to talk about, that I want to talk about a little bit, is the the two sides of, uh, of narratives, which is the imp- implying versus inferring. And I've already used the word inferring a lot. Um, but here we go. So I think the best way to explain this is the authors of a narrative often imply things uh, like a moral or a theme to the story. Whereas it's incumbent on the reader to infer that non-explicit meaning mm-hmm. or moral in the narrative. Um and that's an interesting point because that there's not always a one-to-one correlation between those things. Uh, and you see this happen a lot. Um, because we don't expect authors to be so explicit in their recording of a narrative. They do leave things open to interpretation out of almost necessity. I can't tell you exactly what the color of the room was. It was light when I walked in like, and that may not be important. You know, there's lessons in, in narratives in storytelling where anything you mention in a story, it better be used. It better have a reason for being there or it doesn't matter where this starts to break down though, is when specifically cultures change. Um, so stories that were written hundreds of years ago, the author, the original author their inferences <laughs> that they made when they wrote that story were based on their time, their mm-hmm. culture. Us reading it in the modern era are going to imply things based on our experiences, which are going to be very, very different. So that's just an interesting thing to look at. A good example of that is the the Midas myth. I'm sure you've heard of the Midas myth before. Mm-hmm. So just for those of you who haven't, the, the Midas myth is the one where uh, there's a gentleman and around. I think about- it was a king. Yeah, he was he was a king in somewhere in a river valley near you. In a river valley near you, yeah. Um, and so he wished for or somehow attained this magical ability to turn anything he touches into gold, mm-hmm. right? So he, he then goes home and he starts touching everything and turning it to gold. And I think the the specific one is he touched all of the rose petals in his garden they all turned to gold so he had a golden rose garden or whatever 
And then he realizes that the food he touches turns to gold, so he cannot eat it. And then in some versions of the story, he goes to, like, he rushes up to a loved one. I think it's usually either his wife or his daughter. And, like, out of distress, like, you know, goes to catch her, you know, to tell her that he's distraught and turns her to gold and loses her. And, like, you know, that's the story. Okay. So, in the modern day, a lot of people look at that story and say, ah, this is about greed. This is about greed. Yeah. Because be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And stuff like that. Or, you know. But the reality is the original story had nothing to do with family members. It had nothing to do with that at all. It was just a way to explain why a local river had gold in it. Yeah. Because it's just a made up story. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Which leads me to kind of where myths come from, to take a sidebar. Myths are narratives often. Uh, but that's kind of what a myth is. is It's a way to explain why something happens when you don't have a good reason. Yeah. Uh, don't be wrong. I'm sure they're used for more than that. But that's typically what you see as the usage. And we can go back to ancient Greece. Why is it thundering? Well, Zeus must be pissed. You know what I mean? Right. I guess. You know, there has to be something up there making that noise. Why does the sun move across the sky? Someone's probably pulling it. You know, like... You know, sure. And, and even though we now know that's totally not what's going on, they had no way to confirm that back then, but it was good enough, right? It, we are weirdly more satisfied when things, when we have a reason, even if it's wrong, than having no reason for why something yes, is how it is. Unknowns are uncomfortable. Yes. So we would much, much rather use a lie, essentially, or something just made up, a falsity, and believe it. It, I, I have this. I have this idea. I have, I have no idea how to confirm whether this is true or not, but that a lot of myths came from people telling either their children or just people who didn't know how to stop asking questions. Just something to get them to shut up, right? Um, and then so they they were happy to tell you something that they just pulled out of thin air um, to get you to shut up. Uh, if you're the proverbial child in this case. Right. Um, and you happily take this reason and say, ah, now I know. And then you go tell other people when they ask, or did you know that the gold in the river came from, you know, or whatever. Right. And when you don't have, when you don't write things down and that story changes over time with the times, it, it evolves add a few hundred years to that and it just becomes cultural knowledge that well of course there was a king here once and he touched things and turned it to gold duh like it's just that obvious everyone just accepts it as a truth yeah and then when it becomes old enough and the story changes enough that's where kind of god myths come from where we take things that we can only relate to in maybe a very loose parallel but you don't mess with tradition it's always been that way and you kind of see that as well when stories take on uh you see reasons get added and some of them and i'm going to totally be implying things here so i could totally be wrong but for example you start out with zeus is in the sky right Mm -hmm. okay well if there's a guy up there then when it storms in the ocean, is that the same guy? Eh, it's a different place, though. You know, the same animals don't fly that also swim, so there must be a different guy down there. Right. 
okay and now there's a guy out there you know it's like well people around here have relationships do they have relationships uh, i'm sure yeah absolutely so he's got a wife but what does she do like you know and you just start building out this tree based on things that you've witnessed around you but you apply it in a weird parallel and then the question finally comes about well why does no one see this guy where is he he's got to be somewhere everyone's somewhere uh he's up on a mountain high yep, up, up on mount olympus yep don't go up there don't go up there <laughs> <laughs> and if you do you won't be able to see him because he's invisible Ooh. like or he may not be there he doesn't want to or well i mean you're talking about gods that can throw lightning so don't go up there or you might get killed you know right zeus will be very upset at you for looking exactly um so that, that's that's a little bit about narratives now there's an additional component to narratives I want to move into, and that's called narrative canon. Now, generally speaking, it's subjective. Uh, when we talk about canon, um, it's this collection of works that are considered to be representative of a period or a genre, right? Um, it's also been described as a concept concerning the belonging of literary elements to a greater narrative. So I think that's more what people typically mean when they say canon especially now when a lot of stories have existed long enough that it's easier to just add to a story than it is to make up an entirely new story because you can only tell so many stories, right? Um, abstractly speaking, the narrative structure is so tight to what the human experience is that by now we can encompass the vast majority of human experiences, at least in the abstract. And, and by abstract, I mean, you know, we can take the most obvious kind, which is the hero's journey, which is an abstract of all a lot of stories put together, which mm-hmm. is you have the main character who is usually incapable to a large degree, um, who is unwilling to embark on some type of quest. Um, but he is then he or she is then convinced to do so by some event. Right. Something happens that motivates them to go on to do quest. it anyway. Yeah. And then along that quest, they typically have a mentor and a partner and you're probably thinking of stories now that you've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the best, I think, representation or instantiation of this is looking at something like the Lord of the Rings. It's a very... It follows the formula to a T. Yeah, that pretty much is the formula. Yeah. Yeah. You have Frodo raised in a faraway... Raised in a comfortable home place that is thrust into a this bigger world where he has mentor figures that help him out you know, his, his uncle Bilbo, Gandalf, he has his best friend that goes along with him or his partner. Um, and along his journey, he has to go through a lot of suffering. And then by the end of it, he's changed. He becomes the hero by the end of it, um, through many sacrifices and growth. And that is such an important story for us in the, you know, in reality that we all kind of try to model our lives in a similar way. You know, most children are reluctant to work or they're reluctant to leave their home initially. You know, they don't wander too far. Um, And that's pretty indicative of human beings in general. We tend to not do things we don't have to do. We're pretty lazy in that way. It's pretty efficient. It's very efficient. Um, But at some point, we do have to go out and do something. But when we do, we quickly realize that we are ill-prepared. So we typically will seek out mentors or... Right. And through them, mastery. Exactly. So, there are other stories, uh, other um, abstractions. Uh, I'd care not to go into them at this time, but that's the the very common one. So, um, 
that's a reason you don't necessarily see retellings of the same story too much because Lord of the Rings is as an example of the hero story, but so is Star Wars, right? Yeah. And when you start looking at them in the very abstract sense, they're a little, they're kind of the same story. The setting changed a little bit, but you have wizards. Just in one, they hold laser swords, and the other one, they hold actual swords. You know, <laughs> who cares? Right. Um. But when you but what you can do is you can take elements of that story that were not fleshed out and then flesh them out to add to that greater narrative. So a good example is that is uh, backstories, right? Yep. So you'll see you have this grand narrative and there's a character and you know enough about that character to know their archetype and then you watch them go through their main event. But what if you want to know about that person before that story started and flesh out more of their motivation? Well, you can do that. The story of that character's back that, that backstory of that character and then the main story they were originally a part of together are known as a canon, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, now, legally speaking, and this is just something I briefly want to hit on, um, legal ownership and creative rights get to determine the authenticity of what is or isn't canon. And so you see that sometimes with, you know, companies owning rights to make stories into mm-hmm. different media. They want to try to preserve this canon. Uh, from right. other people. Not just anyone can add to the canon. Right. And and moving on to the practically speaking version. Uh, realistically, it kind of depends on the people who consume the narrative. The people who like to tell that story or be involved with that story. Um, if enough people include something as legitimate, it kind of just becomes legitimate. Right. Um, not always. Uh but most importantly, both what we were talking about legally and practically, what what's can, what's not canon is fan fiction, which is when a single individual writes a story that borrows elements from another story, but it doesn't belong. Um, they will often change elements to make a different story, just reusing some of the material from before. Right. Just reusing material doesn't mean something is canon. It has to be, it has to be cohesive with the rest of the story. I think a fun. Uh... A fun, like, middle ground between official canon and fan fiction is, like, fan theories. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. Where fans will, they'll, you know, they may write things or make videos about them and, and talk about things that they think the characters are up to that is never explicitly said in the story, but they will pull evidence from things that are from the official material. Yes. So everything comes from the official material, but they're painting a story that the original author may never have meant to tell. Yeah, they never inferred that they never implied that, but well, they, they did based on whatever evidence that the, that the theorist is, is pulling from, but they didn't mean to. Right. Um, or maybe they did and they wanted people to find out about it, but you'll never know usually, especially if the offer's dead, you know? <laughs> sure. Um, um, so that's an interesting middle middle place there i wouldn't say so much middle place but i think that it's a fork right it's a fork of fan fiction whereas fan fiction borrows elements to tell a different story fan theories look for the opposite they look to find cohesion in a narrative where there wasn't before and then justify it you know what i mean like yeah. it's it's kind of the opposite but they derive from the same source which is the original narrative um now, the, a sidebar to this is uh, a concept called 
headcanon. Yes. Which is essentially the idea that what is or is not canon to a greater narrative is determined by the reader and only the reader. Um, so a good example of this is the SCP Foundation, which is a website you can go to at any time. It's a collective writing project. Um, so a group of people set out kind of the criteria for how you are to contribute stories to this greater narrative, but they don't police cohesion. Um, so you will have stories that directly conflict with one another, and that's fine. Um, and they get away with this using loopholes like multiple realities and stuff like that. So the only real chain of events that happened are the ones you believe happened. And that's interesting because it, it's like bo it's like fan theorying made official mm -hmm. where it is up to you to determine what series of events happened. And there's some fun in having the ability to interact with a narrative in that way, where you can read through all of these sub-narratives and piece them together in the way that makes the most sense to you. And then furthermore, hopefully, be encouraged to contribute back based on your understanding. And that creates this very... And, and the whole setup of this is this mysterious organization that exists in the shadows behind everything. Um, so what is in reality lack of cohesion can just be instead and in, you know treated as far as the narrative is concerned as just misdirection you know uh it, did it really happen is this story even real or not i don't know but that's that's what makes it intriguing mm -hmm. you know um so the the function of narrative of a narrative canon is to just provide that cohesion like i said before except in the case of head canon which is like an alternative to normal narrative canon um and it's important because it maintains in, in providing that cohesion it usually relies on maintaining a consistency of rules uh, especially in fiction versus fantasy um we'll we'll take uh let's see there there are two main groups there's hard fantasies and soft fantasies mm -hmm. um in soft fantasies, a good example of that, again, is Lord of the Rings. There is magic in this universe. We know that there is. But there are no apparent rules about the magic. Yeah. It's like, wizards can just do things, and it's never explained how they can do it and what the limits are. Right. But they can. And that's a lot easier to use to tell stories, because whenever you need a character to be able to do something, they just can. And don't worry about it. Right. You know. The but, problem with that is that sometimes that turns into deus ex machina yeah it's like oh i've gotten this character in big trouble well oh wait he's a wizard he can just magic his way out of this right and but usually the the counterweight to that is when i the, the, there are two counterweights i think of when you when you hear about something like that and that's if they can do something and it's on the table then from that point forward unless otherwise stated if you see a situation where a person could do that again and they don't they have to give a reason as to why. Yeah. It's it's a it's a lazier way of writing in because a way. It, yeah, anytime anytime a character well, yeah, we're talking about magic. So anytime a, a character that possesses magic does something, you have told the reader that that is within the rules. This is within at least this thing was in the limits of magic in this world. Which for short stories is okay. 
because you're making up the rules as you go. So if the story's short, you don't have that much time to make up a bunch of rules. Um, where that gets difficult, though, is when the narrative canon expands, and then all of a sudden there are tons of scenarios where well, you could have gotten out of this by just using this spell that you did in the last book or whatever. Right. And that's when you have to then do the work. You have to do the work both ways. The difference is, do I just make up a reason to move this plot along and then later say why I can't? Or do I take the time to set up the rules in advance? And a good example of hard uh, magic is Avatar The Last Airbender, the Nickelodeon TV show. It sets up very clear rules as to who can do what and when and how. Uh, and right, the magic is based on like your archetypical elements yes. of nature. And the wizards can only do things if that element is present for them to do it with exactly and, and, and throughout the story it can it adds to that criteria but it never redacts anything from before now, there are some throwaways but tip broadly speaking there are two types of people in the world well technically three but there's a single person who's different but for the for everyone else there's two types of people there's your normal everyday people who can't who are not wizards who are not wizards they just yeah. cannot do the thing uh then there are people who can uh and Typically speaking, this is a genetic thing. Um, you see it in families. If all members of a family can typically do the thing, mm -hmm. or sometimes it's only certain family members, it doesn't just randomly manifest. It's typically familial, so that's one thing to keep in mind. And you can only, like you said before, manipulate your element when it's available, except for people who can do fire, who can just make it out of nothing, because fire kind of comes out of nowhere then that's that's a rule it just happens that way yeah. deal with it um and then there's the the one person out who can control all four and they and that's the main character and so they spend a lot of time talking about that person's role and why they're able to do that and how that is like a spiritual secession um from one person to another inherit and, and it leans on a lot of eastern mysticism about reincarnation and past lives and stuff like that so it's all cohesive in that way you don't see someone just doing something that they've never done before um, and even later on when it does get a little more expansive. So we said before, there's the four cardinal elements, you know, uh, air, fire, earth, and water. Mm -hmm. Later on down the line, you find a person who they can bend earth, but then all of a sudden they can bend metal. And it's like, wait a minute, does that not break the rules? But the story, but then if you think about it, like metal is just made of the same, it's basically just purified rocks. Right. Essentially. And it even goes the extra mile to explain that it's not that they can bend the metal. It's that it's the impurities in the refined metal mm. that are still earth to them that they can actually use. Right. And so they've created a new rule that you can now do this. And then from that point forward in the story, you see people doing it once they learn how. Very convenient, very good system. And what it does is it helps when you when the characters are faced with a problem. You, the reader, should not go, well, why don't you just do this? And if the characters don't think of it, that's weird to you. What's fun is when you don't know how they can do it because you know all the rules. And then the author explains a clever way they got around yeah, it. Yeah, here's a solution that right. is still within the rules. Yeah. So that's, that was an interesting sidebar for sure. Um so let's see uh that's like i said 80 percent of this episode is going to be us talking about narratives and narrative elements right <laughs> um but all of these things kind of tie back to reality um we 
we don't go into great lengths about talking about rules for us in the world, like the laws of physics, which would kind of be similar to hard and soft magic in stories. It's similar, right? Uh, but the reason we don't bother explaining them a lot of the times in stories is because you live that experience every day. You are subject yeah. to the laws of physics every day. I don't have to explain to you how things fall down. You know how things fall down. Gravity. Yeah. That's what we call you it. You see anyway. it every day. Yeah. Exactly. Even when we didn't understand how it worked and we didn't understand what we didn't have a name for it. It was just because it, it just happens. Right. Um, that, that's one of those things that's very interesting that even before we had a name for it, we just knew, yeah, things fall. Deal with it. <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, that's just a quick bridge between that. Um, but kind of tying back to you know, bundling this all back together, narratives are just stories, but we use them, whether they're fiction or nonfiction as a way to understand our surroundings and then communicate things in a way that is just very effective for us to consume. Um, they play a large role in guiding culture. Uh, a good example is if you look in the United States, uh, or the um, America, even all the way back before there were all of the states. Um, I'm going to take... There, there was this story and that's kind of unique to the U.S., or at least the Americas, which is the cowboy. You know? Yeah. That's, that's something that's relatively recent. Um, it's similar to other types, like maybe vagabonds from before. Uh, maybe that's not a good word for that. Or desperados, you know, if you use, use a different lyrical element. But... Uh, most people, when you say, oh, that person's a cowboy, that draws out a bunch of archetypical things to think about, uh, about what that character is. Yeah. So much so that long after, cowboys ceased to exist in their true form, right? We don't necessarily have the need to have people who ride on horseback and rustle cattle, right? That's just not a thing we really need to do anymore, especially on horseback. <laughs> um, but we went so far as to bring it back in a way um a good example is uh teddy roosevelt's rough riders cavalry was falling out of fashion when he existed it still existed but it was giving way to vehicles and giving way to alternative means of transportation but they you they wore cowboy hats they rode horses you know they were trying to invoke the same kind of you know image in your head of a rough rugged individual who is self-sufficient, you know? Um, and that informs a lot about how a culture might see itself. You know, little kids playing cowboys and Indians, for example, that, that telling a story uh, of a cultural history and who is the good guy and who's the bad guy, you know, that's telling that story as well. And it's bringing mm -hmm. forward all of its cultural implications, you know? Um, and then even so much so as, you know, the cowboy who wears the white hat is the good cowboy, obviously. He's the good guy. But the one wearing the black hat, he's a bad guy. He's up to no good. He's up yeah. to no good reasons, you know. <laughs> but, you know. Uh, so, moving on to the final part of what I wanted to talk about today, now that we are about 50 minutes in, is what if you can change these things, right? Um, can you affect culture by changing its narratives, changing its stories? Um and the hypothetical I have to go along with that is, could those with an agenda make a concerted effort to alter narratives or narrative canons in order to achieve a specific cultural or political outcome? 
And the three sub-bullets to that are, is it even possible? If it is, what would it take? And then once you figure those two things out, uh, if if it's possible and we have what it takes, what would prevent this from happening? Or should we prevent this from happening? Mm. So... What are, what are your thoughts? I, I've, I've, I've talked a lot so far in this episode. That so is now, true. Now we have room for discussion now that I have laid the groundwork. <laughs> I think as for whether it's possible to put forth a concerted effort to change a narrative, it depends on how well embedded it is in the culture. But an interesting thing about this, like you're, you're asking, can you affect culture by changing the narrative? Um, but okay there's an interesting relationship here because if a if a narrative is not embedded in a culture then changing it will have minimal effect on the culture right but those are also the easiest ones to change right but if there is a treasured narrative that is deeply embedded in the culture if you could change it it would change the whole culture but it is so deeply embedded, it would be almost impossible to supplant. Okay. What is a good example, then, of a deeply ingrained narrative? I've got one off the top of my head. Okay. Um, it's tied to the concept of American exceptionalism. Okay. So, this narrative kind of comes about from around World War One, World War Two, right? And it came off the back of Manifest Destiny and stuff like that. And the City on a Hill narrative, which is even older than that. It goes back to the time of Pilgrims almost. Where there was this idea that God gave America to the Puritans. <laughs> and they were able to escape the old world to set up God's land in the new world. Mm -hmm. And it would be a country that was strongly religiously motivated, but was exceptionally different and could do things right. It could free itself from the quote sins of its past people. Um, that turned into divine right to then manifest destiny across the, you know, across the land to the next ocean. And it had a lot to do with how America and culture, the American culture attitude towards expansionism within our own continent which led to how we treated indigenous people. Um, and then we went through an isolationist period for a time, but then propaganda around World War One and Two kind of changed our idea of what it was like to get involved in the rest of the world again, um, militarily speaking, but through influence. So the narrative changed. Um, you can make the argument that it changed by a concerted effort, of propaganda don't look at soldiers as a necessary evil look at them as people saving the world they're heroes now mm -hmm. which you can make the argument that soldiers have always kind of from their own culture your soldiers are heroes right right they're protecting you from invaders or bringing your country great riches from the places they're conquering yeah right but the difference with the way we treated it was is that we are in the right we are doing things the right way and now we must go into the world, you know, at one point to defeat the commies. We must get out there and sh 
share and spread the American way. And this is kind of embodied in another culture icon of Superman. Superman. I knew exactly where this was going. Yeah. Yeah. To spread the American way. Yeah. Fighting for truth, justice in the American way. Exactly. And which he, that, that came about as a result of, I would not say that it's necessarily directed propaganda, but it definitely was a product of the culture that was maybe driven by that propaganda. Yes. Um, to look at us that way is that we're in the right. We need to be in the places in the world because they need us, you know, and it, and in a weird way, it's almost like a modernized extension of the white man's burden, you know? Yeah. We need to go out there to the poor unwashed masses of the world, which happen to not look like us most of the time and show them how to live like white people, you know, mm-hmm. um, because we know what's best. Look at us. We're, we're, and, and, and there's, quote, evidence for why you should do this, right? There's, look at all of our technology. Look at our prosperity. Right. Look how rich we are. Yeah, yeah, basically. We clearly are doing something right. You know what I mean? So if everyone just did what we did, everyone would end up like we did. Just give it 200 years, you know? Um, and that led to, like, policies of nation building and so on and so forth. And people being okay with us being all over the world. At least in country. The people that mattered and who voted for this mm-hmm. or voted for the leadership who would continue this. You know, I would argue that that was a concerted effort that had an effect on the culture. Now, did it achieve what outcome it wanted? Who's to say? What was the, how much did the people who led those propaganda campaigns intend for that to be the case? What exactly were their intentions, you know? And I would say that now we do see a pushback against that idea. American exceptionalism is a bad word or it's a bad phrase now. Yeah, like you should be, you know, people describe something as an American exceptionalist thinking when they try to demean it. Mm-hmm. Um, to say that, and and you kind of well, yeah, because I mean, it, well, it calls it out. It calls American exceptionalism the the meme of American exceptionalism out for what it is, which is elitism, right, and arrogance, right. But but why? Just because it's not true, or because those elements are bad. I'm sure for some people that's the case, but yeah, I mean, there oftentimes there's another political motive behind it as well. Right. That, right. Someone may, may have some other idea that they want to push that is contradicted by the meme of American exceptionalism. And so they have another interest in taking down that meme. Yeah. And, and one of the things I often hear, for example, is America is not exceptional. And then here is a statistic about our education, our health care, other political talking points that the candidate I happen to agree with thinks we should spend more money on instead mm-hmm. of the military, which is, you know. And I guess what I'm saying is, is which which begets which, right? Because I could easily see it being the other way, is that the culture, the, just it's kind of like when we're arguing over what is or isn't canon, right? It's the same way with what we kind of considered to be the direction of our culture. You know, if you believe that America is exceptional and you accept that as a part of the canonical story of America, then you will look to add cohesion to that story along that line. That will be a building block for how you then add to that narrative in your daily life and so on and so forth. But if you don't, then you build on something else right so but which is which you know i it's hard to say 
I do think, though, it is possible to make a concerted effort to alter a narrative. I think that's absolutely possible. And, and we see that happen as well with, you know, the influence of, for example, our ideas about traditional gender roles in masculinity and femininity. You know, um, it is less common these days to have a feminine character being a damsel in distress, which is an archetype mm -hmm. that's not considered fashionable these days. No. So we got rid of that, or we see that being gotten rid of. And so that will change our stories. The narratives that children grow up learning from... Will not have damsels in distress. No. Yeah. Um, there will not be anyone to save in that way, right? Right. Or at least they're not just going to be women, right? Right. It's Yeah, it's not going to be the girl who needs help. Yeah. That will not be her character. Instead, she might be the hero or the heroine in this case. Yes. Um, so I do think it's it's possible to change like the cultural attitude towards that based on the stories that people grow up with. Now, can you actually change in, in a direction that you want? I don't know that that's possible. I think the biggest thing we would have to pay attention to is what does the... It, it, I think it all goes back to cohesion, right? There's a reason, like I'm gonna I'm gonna point at a more recent uh, bit of pop culture here. So Star Wars is a good example. That is a well-established franchise that began in the 70s and was built upon throughout the 80s, and then it was added to again with the prequels. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. But but it was it was expanded, and you can definitely tell the difference. Um, the prequels came out. Well, the first prequel came out before 9-11 mm -hmm. um but the second one came out right after and they changed that movie because of that real life event um there was a scene where a big starship was supposed to crash into a building and they're like no no we can't do that <laughs> like but we can have it blow up on the platform and we can talk about elements of terrorism because that's what's popular today mm -hmm. but it told a different story it, it didn't feel the same and people didn't like it for that reason it didn't seem to be very cohesive with the rest of the story like the stories we had been told and then in the 2010s late 2010s we added to that narrative again to that with with other things uh, that were very different that took things from the modern culture and then added to it and initially the first edition episode seven was largely nostalgia bait it kind of went back to the original story and retold it with different characters but after you have these new characters, it changes things. Uh, and it's not as narratively cohesive, right? Um, and people complained about that. It's like, this doesn't make sense, you know? And I think that kind of, to me, highlights the problem with trying to change narratives to change culture is you still have to be somewhat cohesive with what existed before. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you can't change it, but you are locked into the context of where you began or where right. you are you now. must contend with the canon yes you you have to use the rules that are established to you have to build on what you've established or you can change what's established but you got to do it without changing too many variables for it to be different right i think and and it's because you know human beings 
don't change very quickly anyway. We're not used to taking on more than one new thing at a time. We don't like that. We like sameness and, you know, what's normal. Um, so I think that would contribute to the difficulty in trying to achieve a certain cultural outcome. Like if you were to start with imagining the culture you would want and then map from here to there, that would be next to impossible because any changes you make will change the culture in a way that you didn't necessarily predict. And so you have to then evaluate, okay, now where am I? Did I get any closer to where I wanted to be? And then now what? I have this massive board of dials as that make up culture. Which one do I turn next? And then you just add that input and then you have to wait a whole generation to see how it changes. Mm-hmm. And if you try to do it too rapidly, people will just reject it because people don't like when you mess with their narrative cohesions it's and that's relatable i think even to an individual like if if you told me if i asked you like what did you do today and you told me and i was like no you did something else (laughs) you go no (laughs) that doesn't fit and you might even instead of just immediately rejecting it, say, well, why would I have done that? Because like, if I, if I, I think even better, if I said to you, if you told me I got up, I ate breakfast then I took a shower, then I went to work. Then I worked in the yard and I took a shower again. And then I uh, went to bed. If I said, uh, you didn't take two showers in one day, instead of just telling me, yes, I did deal with it. You might be inclined to say, well, but I worked in the yard before I went to so bed. I was sweaty. Yeah. So I was sweaty. So I took a shower. Like you, you're going to use the, what makes sense, you know, right. what, justify yeah. what you did, even though you're just reporting the facts. Exactly. So if you take that to a cultural element where um, there was, you know, let's take the damsel in distress meme from before. There was a woman who was struggling and she needed help. Some man comes along to help her. But right as he was about to help her, she got herself out of the situation and all that guy's work was for nothing. That's not very satisfying a story to listen to. No, it doesn't make sense to us. Right. And it's because in that case, not so much that it's not possible because that happens all the time. Right. It's that why even bother? Tell me the story of the guy. Why did you include him in this story? If he didn't ultimately do anything, why is he here? You know, yeah. Um, it's very similar to me. If I told you a story about a room, you know, there's this room and there were these two people and they were talking they were a very intense conversation and there's this gun on the wall. It's this antique, but it looks as though it can fire. And I spend pages on pages telling you about this firearm on the wall and how brutal it could be. And it has this brutal history. And then I turn back to the conversation and then I end by saying, and their conversation, their conversation ended with them in an argument to which they both agreed that to disagree and went home. Why'd you waste my time telling Why me about the gun? Why did you waste my time telling me about the gun? Exactly. That's that's the point. Is yeah. you can't just change the story the outcome without going back and cutting out all the story you told mm-hmm. me already about the gun. It, we have to have some satisfying conclusion. And to tie that back, looking at the most recent Star Wars movies, for example, there are three main characters from the original story: Han, Luke, and Leia. Right? Those are the three main characters in that story. What makes them interesting is in the most recent trilogy, they all die. Spoiler alert, if you didn't watch them already. But they each die in a different film, right? Mm -hmm. What doesn't work is that you killed them off in ways that don't make for a satisfying payoff. 
So a lot of the complaints were if you would have just let them die in a way that paid off all the things that we've learned about them so far and then moved on from them, you could still achieve what you wanted to do. You could still tell the story you wanted to tell about the characters you now care about. But we're so distracted by the just lack of cohesion of what happened to these people that it doesn't work. So I think tying that even further back to the culture, you can't just nix out things that exist in the culture and say, well, they just don't matter anymore. That doesn't work. We, you, you have to give them their send-off. You have to, I think, in some way respect them and give some type of narrative payoff as to... You know, even if it's something as simple as nodding to the fact that this thing, for all of its problems, achieved all of these things and got us this far. But now we need to move on and use a better tool and build even further. Mm -hmm. That makes so much more sense to people than just saying this is actually all those stories you heard. They're actually wrong. It's actually bad. It was bad the whole time. Because now people are trying to use their bias to defend the fact that they spent their entire lives telling that story, believing that story. And not only that everything they've done has been built on top of that story. They, You can't remove that element without taking everything on top of it with it. And people just won't do it. Um, so yeah, I think that you're... It's not so much that you can change the story to change the culture by just changing it to any direction. You're locked almost into a cone. You can only change it so much at a time. So if you wanted to make a U-turn on the culture, you have to make that 10 degree turn at a time over course of, say, 10 years per ability to make the turn. If that makes any sense. I don't sure. know if that, if that comes across in the audio as well. I was using hand gestures there, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that's what I think. Now I could be wrong. And this is one of those things that I think no one can definitively say because I can't even begin to think about what kind of metrics you would use to try to capture this. But that's, that's what it feels like to me, you know? Um, and I even wanted to talk about this because I'm getting old and I hear all the stories that people tell today and how they don't make sense to me because they weren't the same stories I heard growing up, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, and then it's not to say that I'm trying to be necessarily conservative about it. I'm not saying that these new stories are totally invalid. But what I'm saying is they're not cohesive. And I think that's a problem because if you, I think try to change the narrative too much especially acknowledging that there are generations that coexist for periods of time. That's where you see radical enough culture shifts where people actually become so divided on things because they, you know, if you have a one degree difference over 50, you know, in two cultural beliefs add 50 years. Now you're very far. You're, you're off, mm -hmm. but the harder you make that initial turn, if you make it 10 degrees, you are you're 10 times farther 10 times yeah. farther off over the period of time actually i don't think that's how that works but i don't think it is either I but just uh math um <laughs> i have a math degree by the way yeah i know <laughs> wouldn't you wouldn't think so but uh but anyway that's all that work to explain what a narrative is just to say that i don't necessarily think that it's possible but not not possible in the way you would think but i think there's some serious warnings and things to consider. And that's the last part of it is, should we prevent this from happening? I don't think we should. I mean, I think it's inevitable. Obviously cultures have changed whether people wanted them to or not. It happens. We are in many ways subject to our environment, you know? Uh, but I don't know. I think there's just too many variables to say definitively and to go any further talking about it would just be to waste more time. So
that's all I really have to say about it at this point. He says an hour later. That's all I have to say about it. <laughs> um, so thank you for your time today. Thank you for your time today. Um, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts on on uh, what we discussed so far today? I think I think this is an important thing to consider, like the the exposition about what stories are. It's good to think about that kind of thing and why they're culturally important. And it's also important. I, I yeah that that's an interesting thing to contemplate. How what can what can be the real generational divide is not it it's not confined just to little cultural things, but that in some sense people of different generations are living different stories. And when they clash, interesting conflicts can emerge. Absolutely. Um, that's that's an interesting and psychologically satisfying explanation for that. I agree. <laughs> Which then immediately leads me to believe that maybe it's not true. But <laughs> because that's how that works. The most intuitive things tend not to be true. But that's a topic for a different time. So next week on Philosophers... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, thank you, dear viewer or listener, for viewing and or listening. Um, and again, our audio situation changed, so if you do feel so inclined, please leave some feedback. We will do our best to consume that feedback, and hopefully David can edit this in such a way that it's listenable. No promises. No promises. But until next time, philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.